Greetings, 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 and welcome to Cat's Corner of the Podcast. I am your host, Mr. Cat, Cat Okaday. Welcome to episode four. I don't know why I've decided to start counting the episodes, but for some reason, I have. And so, that's what we're doing. There's a story behind why this is episode four, <laughs> and maybe I'll reveal that at some point, but... <laughs> needless to well maybe it isn't needless but regardless this is me attempting to get back into sync because I've done things a little bit out of order at least according to my plans which you know I think sometimes God laughs at like oh that's so cute you have plans so I thought it'd be kind of fun to kind of reflect over this semester As some of you may or may not know, in addition to all of the amazing things that I get a chance to to be a part of, I am also a professor. I am full-time at a local community college and also adjunct at an HBCU. And I don't really, I talk about being a professor, I think sometimes, but I don't really delve into it. So I thought it'd be fun to kind of give you guys some insight into my life as a professor. And I'm not sure where this is going to go. I mean, I have notes. At least I had some idea about what I thought was going to happen. But, you know, I will plan out an episode in terms of what I want to say. And then I'll get up here and then just start waxing philosophical. So we may hit all the points. We may not. If there needs to be a part two, I will let you know. But as Professor today, I teach, I'm a literature person. So I actually have a master's degree in African literature and history from The Ohio State University and an undergraduate degree from uh, University of Maryland College Park, Black Terps. And that is specifically a concentration in African-American culture. And surprisingly, <laughs> I am not a pharmacist or a lawyer or an accountant, like a good Nigerian girl. But when I finally did discover African-American studies, I felt like I had found a home. And so I remember just, I guess you might as well, you might as well walk it through. I initially started at University of Florida in Gainesville. And then when my mom died unexpectedly in 92, I transferred up to University of Maryland because my family had moved back here. I was actually born in DC and we lived, oddly enough, lived uh, no more than about five minutes from where I live now. The apartment that I grew up in is around the corner. Somehow, without realizing it, I managed to end up buying a house. And my last apartment actually was around the corner from where I used to live as a kid. And my house is around the corner from that. So I somehow managed to come back to my early, early childhood like area. At about six, we moved to Miami because my dad um, was recruited by then Northwest, no, National Airlines. If anybody remembers, it was the airline with the big sun. And that's how we ended up in Miami. And so I spent my formative years in Miami and I don't like Miami. It's not a place that I actually liked living. I was able to make make do, but I, I definitely energetically, it always felt very stifling. And I grew up in the 80s where um, there was a lot of very racist behavior towards Haitians. And so when Haitians would try to seek refuge and asylum, they would be sent to Chrome Detention Center. And anybody that remembers, anybody from Miami knows what Chrome Detention Center actually means and the dangers that abound. So there was, even then, there was a clear distinction between how Haitians were treated versus Cubans. And 
I knew that there was a political reason. I didn't always understand it, but I also was very much aware that there was a racial reason. So Miami does not, is while it is home because of my former years, does not feel like home. It's definitely a place that I'm not a fan of. I will go when I have to, as you will see in the next episode, but it's not the place that I really felt was home. So moving back to Maryland initially, from Gainesville felt, because of the the reasons and all these other things, definitely felt stressful. But I was trying to be a pharmacist because that's what you do, apparently. Um, I had actually wanted to major in psychology. And both of my parents were like, eh, no, why? Eh, no, you need to, no, absolutely not. And so I was forced initially, in, well, not forced, I actually went initially, I wanted to be an architect once it was clear that I couldn't be a psychologist. I actually did some summer internships where I was learning, you know, architecture and then got to University of Florida. And because of all kinds of reasons, ended up in a lot of social science classes that I really thrived in. So studying different religions, studying, you know, sociology, psychology, I really thrived in those places um, where there was math and science, not as much with the exception of biology. I really like biology. So by the time I got to University of Maryland, I was just, you know, up to my neck and trying to pass organic chemistry and all of these things. And it was really hard. Like it was really, really hard. I ended up, I remember taking a community college course at Montgomery College. I had failed physics. I think I'd already failed it once. And so somebody's like, well, you know, you can take it during the summer at a community college and it might be a little easier for you. So I did. And it was the first and only time in my college career that I'd seen a black professor in my science courses. He was amazing. And I wish I could remember his name, but it was like, I think we did an eight week course. And this professor was so good. I ended up getting a B in physics and it really taught me the importance of how, like how professors show up will sometimes determine how students are able to, to show up. And their success or, or, or failures could be related to how, how that relationship is. By the time I got to the point where I realized that I was not going to be a pharmacist, that I was not interested in it, I'd already taken a couple of classes in African-American studies and was just loving it. I was, I was reading things that I had never read before. I was finding works that helped me, that gave me language that I didn't know, that I didn't have initially. So I remember the first time I read W. Du Bois and he talked about the veil and how transformative that was for me. Like, I know there are a lot of people who think that Du Bois was a problem and, you know, he had his issues for sure. But in that moment, like all the the conjecture and all the other stuff that comes with discussing Du Bois' souls of black folk, that particular moment where he talks about, you know, being born as a black person is almost like having a call on you where you can see into multiple worlds and you're in the world you live in and how the veil kind of operates as this call and how there's this double consciousness. I will never forget what it meant to me to have the language double consciousness. I was like, oh my God, this is it. This is how I've been feeling my whole life, you know? Being able to, you know, being a hybrid and being able to sort of be in this space where you're not fully accepted in either world, but you can actually objectively see how these worlds work against and for each other. It was just, it was mind blowing. And so when I proved to my father by not getting into any of the pharmacy schools that I applied to, 
as a dad, I want to study. This is what I want to study. I want to study African-American culture. He was like, well, you've tried. So go ahead and do what you want. So it took me six years to get out of grad, undergrad, just so that we're clear. Like, you know, the first two years trying to pivot and do the, the whole pharmacy thing, I lost. Well, I don't know if I lost time, but I did, you know, I, four years at University of Maryland, graduated with an African-American studies degree. I actually did my undergraduate thesis because you can't get out of LaFrac <laughs> Hall without doing an undergraduate thesis. I had a 30-page thesis that I did on the Agoni of Nigeria. So these are the folks in the Delta region who were subsequently affected by Shell um, or the multinational corporations who were doing, you know, oil, like offshore oil drilling and all these things. So all of the environmental elements of like, not in elements, but all the environmental issues are in that area. Like if you go to Porta Corton, you know, the, that area, you know, there's a lot of pollution a lot of people getting sick, a lot of ways that, you know, Shell promised all these things and never delivered. So I did this whole thing. And the reason I did that particular topic was because I had an amazing professor and Dr. Melinda Shadover, who was this very fly woman who kind of sat outside the scope. She was a white woman who was very much an African-American history scholar. She wrote a really dope book on the Pullman Porters. And, you know, she was just fabulous. First of all, her style was insane. And she just had this way about her that was just very comfortable in her skin. And so she taught a lot of the upper level courses around, like there was a whole class on, on protest that was dope. We learned about like the wretched of the earth and poor people's movement. There's a couple of books that I attribute directly to Mindy who told us to call her Mindy. She didn't want us to call her Dr. Shadowbird. Like that's how cool she was. And Mindy was just, she really became one of the models that I decided to kind of frame myself in terms of how I related to students when I started teaching. The other person was Dr. Francille Roussan Wilson, who was an amazing historian in her own right, and actually went to school with Hillary Clinton. They both ran against each other for, I think, student government. Um, so she, you know, she, you know, she knew Hillary like, yeah, I went to school with her. And um, her husband, Dr. Ernie Wilson, who was, I think, political science, was my undergraduate thesis advisor. So I had this beautiful sort of amazing mix of folks who took their role as educator very seriously, but also had this this really cool, like Dr. Wilson was this very, she, had this, she has this very dry humor. <laughs> She's just very dry humor and this very cool, like deep voice. And she just, she was just like, she was kind of like, stoic in the way that she handled things, but she became such, she was such a mother figure at the time. I really needed someone to like put their arm around me and like make, you know, tell me it was going to be okay. She was that, she was that person. She really, really, really like showed up for me in a way that I really needed at the time. And like, you know, she would have me do extra stuff for her and she would pay me for it. You know, she really, they really made you feel like I'm in college. Like there was this, this way that my college experience at University of Florida was just weird because it was Florida. So there was a lot of just segregation and the way that we, you know, the dorms, it was just a weird, it's a weird time. But being a commuter student at University of Maryland, I got a sense of my own adulthood in a way that was very different. And those professors were kind of integral in getting me to the finish line with the, along with the, a few really dope administrators. And so by the time I have now, I've, you know, I'm, I'm in grad school, 
I get an assistantship, which means I have to work in the office one semester or one quarter. And then another couple of quarters, I, I ended up having to be a teacher's aide. And I got a chance because I would aid for the teachers that taught African history. I got a chance to teach in the stead of the professor one one week when he had to go home. Uh, I can't remember where. I think he was from Senegal. He had to go home for an emergency. He had to go back to the continent. So I had to teach the class. And once that happened, it was a wrap. It was such a wrap. Like I loved not only like disseminating information, but actually engaging the students were like, let's talk about it. What does this mean? So like (laughs) this professor in particular had these overheads. That's how old school he was. So he would throw these overheads up and he would just basically read from the overheads. And it wasn't the most effective way to engage. It was really hard to ask questions because it was like everything was just laid out. So it was like, okay, well, what are we supposed to do with this? So when I had to take over for the three or four days that um, he he wasn't able to teach, I had the overheads up, but then we kind of took time to explore different things. And we had the most amazing conversations. And I'll never forget, I think after the third day, I was like, hey, you know, Professor So-and-so is going to be back next week. So we'll go back to the way things were. And the whole class was like, man, do we have to? Like, yo, you're a really good teacher. And this is the most fun I've had in this class this entire time. So I knew that I enjoyed teaching. And then when I got students to, you know, when students sort of gave me the feedback that they enjoyed my style, I was like, okay. And one of the things I did do was I modeled myself after I took, you know, Mindy's casualness, like she would deliver these deep, you know, profound lectures in this very casual way. Like it was funny because I think she would laugh if I told her this, but she always looked like she was in a movie and we were just kind of watching her do her thing. She was really, really brilliant in the way that she was able to take very dense historical material and bring it down to our level. And then Dr. Wilson, you know, she was just, she was very clearly herself. And that was something that I took from her. Like she didn't try to be something that she wasn't. She didn't try to make friends if that wasn't her thing. Like her bag was, I'm a historian. I'm gonna deliver this lecture this way. And that's what it is. And occasionally I might crack a joke that I laugh to myself about, but you know, that's how I'm going to roll. And so I was able to morph these two folks and like create, you know, and like take what I enjoyed most as a student and as a mentee from them and like bring that into the space. And so once I found out I could teach community college with a master's degree that I didn't need to have a PhD, I jumped at it. Once I, you know, I was able to get in at one school. And then at the time I was still working as a trade executive because I've had many lives, y'all, many lives. And I remember an opportunity came to teach this course in African-American literature. And I got the person who couldn't teach it was like, hey, my sister friend can. And I was like, yeah, I'll do it. And I remember talking my boss into letting me come into work like late on those days so that I could teach a morning class and then come to work. Like I was out here, out here. And so once I got the teaching bug, it was something that I really, really wanted to do. And since 2010, so I've been teaching since about 2004, but 2010 is when I actually got a full-time gig and it was, I was able to transition into a full-time space so that I could, because at some point I had multiple adjunct jobs. Like I quit my job in 2004 because I read The Alchemist and I was like, I'm going to go and find my gold. And also working for a plastics association, just, you know, at some point it didn't feel good. And so, and also wearing suits and also dealing with, you know, insistent white people who were on a path that I just couldn't follow. It was a lot. And so the decision to leave 
simultaneous with my boss, we quit on the same day, meant that I had to kind of figure things out. And this is how I became, ended up becoming a root woman with herbalism because I got a, a part-time there and then I was ad- adjuncting. And so I, you know, I've, I'm adjuncting, I'm I'm doing herbs. I At some point I had like seven classes between like three schools. It was insane. So when I finally got the full-time gig and I could like reduce my, my load of all the jobs, I really kind of went about trying to figure out my identity as a professor. I really wanted to work with students of a non-traditional age because I feel like community college is an important contributor to larger sort of communities in general, but also in terms of who gets access to education, I think community colleges is really important. And I think there, of course, is the the stereotype and the rhetoric and the and the looking down your nose. I was actually when I graduated from high school, I had was given an opportunity to go to Miami-Dade Community College for free. And I turned my nose up at it because I was like, no, nah, I'm going away to school. I don't want to be here. I don't go to community college. And of course, now that I look back and I see my student loan bill, I should have taken that damn full time. But the amount of amazingness that comes out of community colleges is really, really important to know. And one of the things that I think really May Community College, like for me, the place I was going to do it at was that at some point I learned that, you know, because when I would look at Mindy, she just always looked so put together. And so one day she kind of let us into her life a little bit. And she basically talked about how she had dropped out of school, high school, and had gone on to get her GED and then went to community college, knocked out those two years and then transferred to like, I can't remember where she was, Brown or something like she she did really well and then transferred to a four-year institution. And I'll never forget that point because it's like you never know. Not everybody looks like their journey. And so when she when she shared that with us, I was really even more impressed with her. But it really stuck with me that community college um, had been her gateway into her academic career. And I just thought that was such a powerful share. And so that stuck with me. And so going into a community college situation where I got to work with traditional age and non-traditional age students was really dope. And over the years, you know, I really enjoyed what I found that what I find that I enjoy is the interaction, working with students, face-to-face classes. I, you know, I teach online classes, but I'm always going to be a lover of face-to-face more than anything else. And really being able, particularly in the African-American literature sections and the world literature sections, being able to talk about literature in this way, it just does something to me. Now, that being said, the administrative aspects of being a professor stress me the hell out. Grading papers <laughs> stresses me out. Um, having to manage all of my multiple deadlines stresses me out because I think for me, if it was up to me, <laughs> my writing classes would be a year long. We would sit out in the woods at times and like, you know, go into museums and, you know, write about all kinds of things. And I wouldn't necessarily have to grade your papers, but it would be like this communal read and feedback. And by the end of it, you'd be a better writer, but we wouldn't have to worry about grades. Because I think that grades in a lot of ways, particularly when we're talking through, you know, something like writing, which is recursive and has to be done over and over and over again for you to improve. I think sometimes the grades can be really discouraging because let's face it, everybody's not an A writer. And as a student, I did not think that I could write because my professors at the time were, you know, shitty grad students who were upset that they had to teach, you know, these undergrad classes and were not very helpful. So when I decided to teach at community college, the first thing that I was offered was something in my major, which was African-American literature. And it just so happens that the chair at the time, at the first school that I taught at, 
she said, hey, how do you feel about picking up another class? I was like, yeah, you got another African-American lit class? She was like, nope, but I do have an English course. And I was like, well, I'm not an English major. She was like, yeah, but you are, you're an Afram major. Writing is a big part of that. You can teach this class. She's like, I, I have every faith in you that you can do it. So that started my journey on teaching English. And I have to say, having to communicate to students how to write, um, having to explain thesis statements and sentence construction and cohesiveness of the argument has made me a better writer because there are things that I didn't understand about the writing process and about grammar until I had to teach it. And I'm convinced that we're, the way that we are teaching kids to write in middle school and in high school in particular is terrible. I remember taking honors classes in high school all the way from ninth grade up through senior year. And Ms. Atkins, my 12th grade English teacher, she wore us out. She wore us out in terms of what our writing had to look like. You know, she was a younger teacher compared to the rest of the other teachers. And she used to wear us out and she used to grade the shit out of my paper. She used to wear me out to the point where I would just be ready to fight somebody. And she would always say, I'm getting you ready for college. I'm getting you ready for college. So when I got to college and I was getting like C's and D's on my writing papers, I was like, well, what the hell did you prepare me for? There was a way that they wanted, particularly in technical writing classes, you to follow certain instructions for whatever reason I could not process. So when I decided to start teaching English courses and writing courses in particular, I went back to that 18, 19 year old self, those first two years at University of Florida, where I really struggled with my writing courses because I didn't understand what I was being asked to do. And I didn't understand, I couldn't process what the book was showing me. It was probably right there. The way it's right there for my students now and they can't see it, but I couldn't see it. And so those were the things that really influenced how I was going to be a professor. Being a professor is something that, you know, again, like the writing process, you just got to keep doing to get better. You don't start off. I mean, I think I have a natural inclination to be a good educator, but I didn't always understand the rhythm of things. And I also didn't, I hadn't figured it. It's taken me a very long time. I would say I've been teaching full time for, it was, it's 12 years this August. And I feel like I'm just now understanding how to manage my teaching brain with my creative brain because they haven't always worked well together. They don't coexist well. They pull in me in different directions. And so it's not always been easy. And one of the things that had to happen in order for things to kind of mellow out and work is that I had to stop over teaching. I used to teach, you know, fall and summer, you have to teach, but then I would teach, no, fall and spring, you have to teach, but I would teach summer. I would teach winter. I was like teaching, 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 teaching. And because of that, I was maybe getting out of the whole year, maybe two or three weeks total of break time. One of the things that happens, at least for me, is that when you are teaching writing in particular, you have to read a lot of student papers. And it affects your ability, I think, over time to read <laughs> to read cohesively in general. Like I had to, I found as someone who used to be a voracious reader of fiction, once I started grading and having to read papers, it kind of made it hard for me to read for pleasure. Like reading for pleasure was something that I've actually been fighting to get back because over this period of time of just teaching in general, I've kind of lost my taste for it. Like it just like my, the way my brain works when I'm reading for pleasure is like, I have to be like, okay, don't read this to analyze it. Just enjoy it. Just enjoy it. So there were things that have been happening <laughs> these last decades and some change you know, my teaching brain and my creative brain have been sort of battling back and forth. And the teaching brain is very linear. 
It has to be. I'm not linear, but my teaching brain has to be linear, which means I have to pay attention to deadlines and I have to set things up way in advance. And anybody who knows me knows that I live on the edge. I'm a Sagittarius. Procrastination is, you know, my love language. (laughs) I'm going to get to it and you will get it, but you will not get it right away. And so there's just a way that in terms of how my creative brain works, that my teaching brain it was a mess, y'all. There were days where I was like, oof. And this was like my early days when I was actively building LSP and actively planning and programming nightlife stuff. DJ Stylist will tell you, you know, we would have gigs and I would have papers with me and I'd be at the bar grading papers. Because for whatever reason, my teaching brain was good at engaging with students. Like, hey, let's talk this through. And I could explain to you what was going on. But then when it came time to sit and grade, it was like, oh my God, this is stressing me out. It's like, you want me to sit and be still and read? So it was always something. And when I think about this past semester in particular, and I look back to who I was as a professor in those early days, you know, it's been a journey. She has grown. She has really grown. And I'm proud of her because anytime you can get your grades in before the deadline, you're winning. Because, <laughs> you know, sometimes you don't make those deadlines because when you're grading all of these papers and you're trying to get all this stuff done, it can be overwhelming. During the pandemic, when we went on spring break and didn't come back, I remember I was teaching a class for the very first time that I hadn't taught before. And so it went from being face-to-face to being remote. And it was stressful. Like students were panicking. Everybody was freaking out. There were a lot of students who were like, I can't take an online class. I didn't want to take an online class. That's not why I signed up. I signed up for a face-to-face class. I was like, well, there's a whole pandemic and um, disease outside. So we're going to have to make it work. So what you learn is that you're also in a lot of ways, much like Mindy, much like Dr. Wilson had to do me, you're also mentoring folks. So it's always, you know, every semester, there are ways that you have to figure out how to communicate the vision for the class in a variety of ways. Like one of the things that I've gotten really good at is the various ways I can tell you what I want or how to do something. Once I figure out how you learn, then I can definitely figure out a way to tell you, explain to you what it is that I need you to do. And that is one of the things that I've absolutely enjoyed about, you know, having to have a teaching brain. Like once I was able to get my teaching and my creative brain to stop competing and just accept that they work differently, I was able to take things from my creative space and pull into my teaching and, you know, vice versa. And so with this last semester, I struggled. I struggled really hard because I really, not only was it, you know, the first time that my entire class load has been asynchronous online, which means that we don't meet regularly. There's not, so it's not a remote class where you meet on certain days. It's asynchronous, meaning that you don't meet and it's all online. So they only have to engage with me via the system that we use to, you know, the platform. And in addition to this being the first time that all of my classes were asynchronous and online, it was also the first semester that we were using a new system called Canvas, which is something that I used way back when. But once the school shifted to Canvas altogether, as opposed to Blackboard, I got my Blackboard classes down. Like, you know, I got, I know how Blackboard works. I had to, it had a new learning curve. And that meant having to manage weird ways that Canvas likes to notify you of things. Students panicking because they don't know where things are. You panicking because you don't know if you're doing it right. And all of that happening in the midst of COVID still lurking about people, you know, dealing with their own personal stuff and having to do whatever. And then on top of that, you know, managing the fact that normally in a normal situation, I would have two online courses. Six was insane. 
And I remember telling my chair, I was like, hey, the next time I try to do this, I need you to remind me of this semester because this was really, really stressful. The thing about online classes for me is that the not having the rhythm of actually going in and seeing students means that for my level of sanity, I have to make sure that everybody is on point or at least that I've done what I needed to do to make sure that you're on point, which means that I will do an assignment, I'll put it up, I will let it sit, and then I'll do a video saying exactly what's in the assignment. And then there's reminders. And it's like you six classes at any point in time, at any given time, I have anywhere from, with six classes, it was somewhere around roughly on the low end, 60 students on the high end, possibly, you know, 90, possibly. And so that's a lot of folks in various, you know, classes that you're keeping track of. And then on top of that, depending on what, whether it's a 2000 level course or a thousand level course, there's, there's all kinds of exams and assignments. And it was just a lot, y'all. And I think for me, this semester taught me that it reminded me of why I love teaching. As crazy as things were and as stressful as it was trying to keep track of everything, there were moments where students would send me messages like, hey, professor, I know you're working really hard. I know you got multiple classes. I just want to thank you for how you, you know, for, for showing up. And, you know, it's, it's random, unsolicited cheerleaders telling you you're amazing and thanking you for being present. And, you know, you always think you're doing worse than you actually are. And so there'd be days where like, oh my God, I suck. I didn't do this. I didn't do that. I didn't do this. And then I would get this message from a random student saying, hey, professors, want you to know I appreciate you. My eldest daughter <laughs> syndrome requires me to be concerned about people at all times, even if I don't want to be. And so working in an online situation where you never get to see anybody unless you force it. So like, I would be like, hey, you know, I got office hours. We can meet there. We can get on the phone. We could chat on Zoom or whatever. You know, I had a student tell me I work and so I don't have time to meet. And this one student really needed to meet me because there were some things that were going on. And so managing you know, trying to respect the boundaries that they're setting with the boundaries that I have to set with the fact that this class has certain expectations in terms of its course outcomes. Every day, it was a, it was a situation. Now, to be fair, one of the things I have had to learn is that I am the professor. And so this is where the creativity comes in, in terms of my ability to sort of think about different ways of doing assignments. So I've been playing around with the discussion boards, you know, in terms of the tone and the way that I'm using language to kind of make it a little bit more fun. I found out recently, like at, towards the end of the semester, that the system that we're using now allows you to do audio notes. <laughs> Listen, now that I've found these audio notes, as much as I don't like grading papers, I feel like I have finally found the thing that's going to make grading papers less stressful for me. Because one of the things that people don't realize is that when you're grading papers, what you're trying to do is evaluate students and give them the right amount of feedback so that they can make the corrections, but also that they don't get discouraged. And sometimes you get papers that make no sense. Sometimes I get assignments and I'm like, is this what I asked you to do? And I have to go back and look at the assignment because people will just pull from anywhere. Like I have students that pulled readings that were not part of the reading assignments. And I'm like, well, why did you read this? Well, I thought I could choose anything. Well, no. I mean, that's what the syllabus is for. You know, I had some students who never knew that there was a syllabus. And I was like, well, how do you know, how do you do the assignments if you don't know that there's a syllabus? So it was just like, there were some things happening throughout the semester that was like, oh, this is a little much, you know? And I realized as, you know, we were going through it that, you know, we really have not spent enough time. And I think I've said this already. We haven't spent enough time really reflecting on the trauma of the last two years. 
And I watch students try to manage their lives and their families and their responsibilities and work and still try to go to school. And it's like, I hate that you have to choose between all these things just because you want to get an education. I've had students who have sent me messages that they're homeless and they're not sure if they'll be able to turn their assignments in. I had a student who recently explained to me that much after, way after the fact, that because of the Wi-Fi being an issue at his at his home and his inability to use the Wi-Fi at work, he was often having to rely on his phone to get his assignments in, which explained why some of his papers weren't formatted correctly. And so there are all of these ways that folks are just trying to get an education. And I think about the way that as a society, we tell students, we tell everyone, you have to have an education in order to be successful, in order to get the job you want and all these things. And then when we get into these systems of, of education, sometimes it's not a kind system. And so I work really hard to make students feel um, heard. And I work really hard to make sure that that they know that I see them and I hold them accountable because there's only so much I can do. I can't, you know, I can't write the paper for you. I can give you advice. I can sit with you. I can give you an understanding of, of what you need to do to make things stronger, but I can't write the paper for you. I can't do the test for you. And so this semester has been a really good one in the sense of when I step back from everything, now that grades are in and I finally got it done and I got it done ahead of schedule. Hello. I realized that I'm actually a dope ass teacher. <laughs> if I do say so myself. I also realized that I think I've been making things a little too hard on myself in terms of the standards, the internal standards that I'm placing on myself. I'm giving more grace to my students oftentimes than I'm giving grace to myself. You know, what I love about teaching is that it ends in terms of the semester and you have an opportunity if you take the breaks like I'm taking now to rest and then come back to a new semester, new set of students with an opportunity to refresh and do things differently. And every semester I tweak something about my classes. I do something different. But one of the things I've decided to do is a major overhaul and I'm really excited about. And it entails basically taking the final paper assignment and making it, you know, having it happen sooner, you know, earlier in the semester rather than later in the semester. And just thinking through ways that I can show them what wellness can look like in the space of you doing all of the things that you're doing. So I'm excited about... (laughs) 2023, oddly enough, because I have figured out something that I think will work and that will keep everyone good and groovy and juicy. And I won't be like so stressed out by the end of the semester. And so there is a way that I, the experimentation, because y'all know that that was my thing for this year. It was just experiment, experiment, experiment. And so I'm looking forward to the experiment in a way that I normally, by this point, I'm like, yeah, I'm over it. I'm tired. I'm just going to go sleep. Da, 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 da. I'm like, yo, I can't wait to try this out next semester. So it's, there is an exciting piece. And then, you know, because of the work I do as an adjunct with students around branding and marketing, their final projects this semester were just, some of them did such a good job. And some of them had to pivot and they pivoted in really amazing ways. And so there's this beautiful balance of the creative and the linear of that, you know, because I, because I do adjunct that makes the teaching space feel a lot less um, rigid. Like, I feel like this is one of the first times where I can say that my teaching brain and my creative brain, they're getting better at sharing space. They were arguing earlier in the semester, like it was a it was a whole on beef. And like last semester, the creative brain had the teaching brain in the headlock. It was a problem. 
But by the end of this semester, I definitely felt like, okay, I think I know what I can do different. And I also now understand the boundaries around how much online classing I can actually teach before it's too much. Like I always knew my limit was like two or three, six is insane. So I need to stick to that two or three. And thankfully that will happen. My new schedule is a lot more in alignment with what I usually do, um, which is a nice sort of two online classes. And then, you know, the rest are face to face. And I think that'll help kind of keep the rhythm that I'm used to. And that makes me feel like, okay, I can manage this. So I think it's going to be good. The big takeaways, though, for me as a professor is that I have to remember the grace that I give them, I have to give myself. I also have to remember that I'm a creative. There are course outcomes that I have to meet. I can do it. There are ways that I can bring a little bit more fun into the space that the learning still happens, but that it works in a way that works with my creativity. So even just audio notes, being able to give students audio notes, that excites me. That is a huge takeaway for me. That makes me feel really good. As far as the students, I mean, some of the messages that I've gotten have been really sweet and um, thankful. I'm really proud of my writing classes. I think that for those who stuck with it, they came out better writers and that's really what you hope for. And I'm a big fan of progress. I don't, I know that grades are important, but I love when a student who came in possibly at a D level or even an F level comes out on the other side as a C student. That's progress. And it makes me feel like, yeah, that's, that's dope. I also love the accountability aspect because of the way my classes are designed. Students really, you know, it's up to them. The more, if you do the work, you do well. And it's, it's not just based on how well you write. It's also about your consistency and how well you, you know, listen to feedback and how you turn your assignments in. So I had a couple of moments this semester where I was like, yeah, you know, people think I'm a hard grader, but I think I'm fair. And, you know, I also think that, you know, not that I've mellowed out, but I I realized that in deciding to decondition some of the ways in which we think about academia, I was sharing this with my work wife, by sharing more of my personal sort of story, being more transparent and reducing the barrier between student and teacher, because I do think there is a mentality, I think sometimes that because I'm a professor, I have to maintain this uh, this veneer of like perfection that just isn't true. And so, you know, if I make a mistake, I'll be like, my bad, I'm, I'll make that correction. If students have questions, you know, I don't necessarily take offense if it's like, hey, you forgot to do this, I did forget to do this. Or I'll tell them like, yo, y'all know my brain got a lot going on. Like if I forget something, tell me so I can, you know, I I tell them like, yo, sometimes you need to remind me if something's missing, let me know. And so reducing the barrier and, and letting them know that I'm human and just as much in need of times off and a break and all these things, it does help to reduce the friction that I think I used to have in my earlier days. Cause I do think I was made to feel like I have to, I remember um, an administrator saying, you know, I was having an issue and I was explaining to them what happened just so that they had, they knew that, you know, the student might complain because, you know, I misunderstood something and, you know, I apologize, but I don't know if they, if that was enough for them. And I'll never forget it. He was like, don't ever apologize. As a professor, you don't, you don't ever apologize to students. And I was like, that's a little ridiculous, but there is a sense that that's what you're supposed to do. And I think my approach now, leaving that behind, leaving behind the, you know, sometimes when you are part of a group that isn't always well represented in your field or whatever, or in your department, you feel like you have to do all of these things so that you seem even more above board. And I was like, you know what, I'm just going to embrace this and they're going to get what they're going to get. And once I let go of 
feeling like I had to do all of these things and just kind of did my thing, things were better. And I think that I was received better as a professor and, you know, realizing that, also realizing my role and how my role sort of affects students. I know that I'm a professor. I take it seriously, but not that much, like in the sense of it doesn't make, it's not a power trip that I'm like, oh, I'm the professor, da, 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 da. But I didn't realize that that's how they were viewing me. And because of that, that was often sort of influencing how they were seeing my feedback, how they were taking my jokes sometimes, how they were kind of seeing how I showed up. There was just, there was all of this stuff associated with being the professor that I didn't realize was part of the package. So me thinking I'm just showing up as myself, I realized over time that no, they they don't believe that part because you're still the professor. So they're not going to come and tell you certain things because you're still the professor. I'm like, okay, all right. So I just had to figure out the language that I needed to use to demystify that space, to still own the space of, yes, I am the leader of this class. I am in charge. And at the same time, it's a benevolent dictatorship. I'm willing to hear you out. And if I think it's a good idea, I'll go with it. And if not, I can say no. It's come to a good place. that you know Now if I could just get the teaching brain and the creative brain to like hold hands every once in a while, I think we could be on a good thing. But for now, at least they're not doing as much battle as they used to. So yeah, that's my Professor O story. I did. I was asked, because excuses are a big piece, and begging season, which is what I usually refer to as the last two weeks of the semester when students start to realize their grades and some of them haven't been paying attention, and you start getting begging. Begging season used to be a lot more robust before the pandemic. It's now, you know, now that we have most things being done digitally, begging season is not nearly as interesting as it was, but I'm often asked like, what is the, like, what is the most memorable excuse you've you ever heard for not being able to turn in an assignment? And it wasn't mine. It was a colleague. We used to do this thing before, you know, prior to like this influx of online classes where we would, you know, me and another colleague, we would compare notes to be like, all right, what'd you get? Like, what, tell me. And I've had things like my grandmother died for like the fourth time or, I got a flat tire on on the way to drop the paper off and that's why I was late. But his has, I've yet to hear anything that, that tops it. And it was simply my dog peed on my printer and that's why I don't have a paper for you. So with that, <laughs> I'm out. Thank you so much for listening. I appreciate y'all for your shares and your subscribes. Feel free to tell me if you're a professor, if you are an educator, you know, what's your best excuse that you've gotten so far? Like, you know, what I'd love for you to share that. You can hit me up at Cat's Corner Co. Um, just follow the links to all the social media stuff in the description or, you know, leave it in the comments. I'd love to know what your <laughs> what your best excuse moment was because they can be very, very, very creative when they want to be. But yeah, that one has never been topped. So if anybody can top my dog Pete on the printer, I'd love to hear it. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the end of this episode. I'm out because it's culture ain't gonna make itself thank you for listening i will be back with yet another story that somehow is tied to my life and makes sense take care thank you for listening it means a lot to me just wanted to let you know that cat's corner the podcast is produced by little sosa productions and edited by Aileen Andrada of Your Pod. But if you'd like to follow us, you can check me out at Cat's Corner Co. K-A-T-S-K-O-R-N-E-R-C-O on all platforms and LSP underscore on the go. 
Tune in next time for another edition. As always, we appreciate your listen. Don't forget to like and subscribe so that you can be updated as new podcasts come in. Take care.